our first reading of Holy Scripture, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's turn to John now for our gospel reading. We'll be reading some uh, familiar verses here, including both the charge to be born again, but also uh, John 3.16. And I do want to direct you, especially because we can easily miss it, the uh, reference to Moses lifting up the serpent. I'll be uh, touching on that uh, in just a bit. So John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now our final reading, Acts chapter 16. A bit of a vision as to how this works out in real life as we come to uh, Lydia, who then heard the gospel and then came to faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 16, I'll be reading verses 11 through 15. Acts 16, verses 11 through 15. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, last week in Indianapolis, I completely forgot to have, us, have them read the uh, catechism. I'm not going to forget that this week which is especially humiliating because they just use our very same catechism liturgy. So it wasn't because I was out of my element at all. I guess I was just too much of an eager beaver. So let's turn to the back of the uh, uh, hymnal and we will read responsibly as is our custom from the Lord's Day for today, Lord's Day 7. That's 875, Lord's Day 7. And when we get to uh, question 23, the last one, uh, we're not going to read that one together. Um, I'll just draw attention to it because we've already confessed the Apostles' Creed earlier in our first uh, service. Lord's Day 7, question 20. Are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merits. Question 22. 
What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. And now in question 23, it asks about what the articles are. And we, of course, then confess that most ancient summary of the Christian gospel, which is found in what we call now the, the Apostles' Creed, and what many before us simply called a baptism creed, and took some different forms in different regions, but then came together in time with a common, um, a common confession, both in the Latin-speaking West and in the Greek-speaking East. May God now add his blessing to the teaching of his word. Let me uh, remind us as we get started here about the movement of our catechism, because it is important so we don't misread some of these things in the catechism. But we're moving that from guilt to grace to gratitude, correct? And we are right now at the beginning of the grace section. Recall the language that catalyzed the guilt section. It's the language of how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. Now as we come here, then we're being asked about what a Christian believes, so what's promised us in the gospel. This confession here of the gospel, it's being used in a narrow sense, in a specific sense, to talk about good news, not good commands. And when we get through then this grace section, which focuses on good news, we will then come to the good commands in the gratitude section, where we come back then to the law of God. But this law and gospel distinction, not separation, is found just part and parcel of our confession of our catechism. When we come now to this question of uh, these questions raised by Lord's Day 7, it's worth noting up front that the main theme being put forward here is that matter of faith or saving faith, also called here true faith. And so I want to consider with you reflect upon five things, and the first two a little bit longer, the last, thing quite, last three quite brief. Its cause, its instruments, its nature, its contents, and its effects, as we consider saving faith. So let's begin with its cause. The cause of saving faith is nothing less than, nothing other than, the Holy Spirit. Be mindful we have already confessed in question and answer five that we are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. We've already said that. We've already established that. That when we think about depravity and the depravity spreads through all of who we are, that depravity has a moral effect, or we should maybe say an immoral effect of corrupting us that we will not trust God and love him. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a clear inability that must be overcome. And then we confess not that not only in Heidelberg 5, but Heidelberg 8, it asks us about this inability 
asking the question, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable, the inability, unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? The answer was yes. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. This is the very thing that we are learning about Lydia, that there's always the requirement for God to do a work on the heart before coming to faith. Jesus in John chapter 3 clarifies that for us as he interacts with one of the great teachers of Israel, a scribe, Nicodemus, perhaps the chief scribe. And he tells Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again and you cannot enter it. Now focus on that word sight. You cannot see the kingdom of God. He's implying clearly that Nicodemus, who had earthly eyes, was indeed spiritually blind. And he's telling Nicodemus that the solution to his plight is being born by water and the spirits. It's being born again, which is signified and sealed unto us in the waters of baptism. This new creation that God must perform in order to see the kingdom of God. I mention that because this theme of sight is then brought up again implicitly in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so this must the Son of Man be lifted up. What happened in the wilderness? They were being cursed for sin. And the only means to salvation was to look at what Moses lifted up, a bronze serpent. They had to look there, that sight being a metaphor for faith. And so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us. Enabling us to not be navel gazers, curved in on ourselves as many of our forefathers spoke, to be obsessed with ourselves and selfish, but to be born again that we might overcome that spiritual scoliosis to lift our eyes and to look up to see the uplifted Savior. Lifted up in a twofold sense in his crucifixion and in his ascension. The Holy Spirit alone can do this. Our first point, the cause of saving faith, is the Holy Spirit. Second, the instruments of saving faith. This instrument here is the gospel. And the gospel, as we think of it, narrowly considered. The promise of forgiveness by grace because of Christ. It is in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism that the author of our catechism makes very clear that the way he's using gospel here refers to things which are to be believed rather than the law which he calls things which are to be done. Things which are to be believed. In other words, to sit and to receive a gift rather than to go forth and to achieve, which the law commands us to do. 
Saving faith here is referring to what is done. Because news tells us about what is done. And good news is about what Christ has done. Not about what you do. It's the promises of the gospel which the Spirit uses to bring about saving faith. Everyone in this world has a conscience, and Romans 2 tells us that the moral law is written upon our conscience. The moral law by itself does not bring about saving faith. It does not. It just commands. And as it commands, it convicts. I think it is a good thing for the Ten Commandments to be all around society, because the moral law of God is good, it is helpful, it is fruitful, but Putting the Ten Commandments all around society does not convert. It commands. It might put people in a place, in a posture, where they're then ready to hear the gospel, but all it does is expose to them their need. It does not deliver the solution. The solution is not a command for perfection. The solution is that news that says, Christ has kept the law for you. Christ has come and carried your sins for you. And Christ, by His Spirit, freely gives the Holy Spirit to you that you may now finally even begin to keep that law from the heart. The Gospel is that promise that comes in Christ, the message of Christ crucified. The good news of Christ crucified for sinners is what converts. And as we read in 1 Peter verses 23 and 25, that we are born again by the good news that was preached to us. Now, it's worth noting that the law has an important place, and yet a necessary place in our evangelism. You cannot understand Christ if you don't understand the law. So perish the idea that we would ever be only proclaimers of the gospel. Because if you only proclaim the promises of God without the commands of God, the promises are, cannot be understood. They must go together. We must proclaim both in all of the biblical truth, goodness, and beauty that they come with. So both must go together. Likewise, it's worth mentioning that there is also an important place for things that we call an apologetic argument. Apologetics, that, uh, that process and, of dialogue and discussion whereby we bring people to recognize their need of Christ. Where we engage with objections. Where we seek to expose sin and to expose that the Christian way of reading the world is really makes the most, the most sense of the world. And even more than that, it's required because we presuppose the triune God in everything we think, say, and do. But those kinds of apologetic arguments are a means to an end to bring people the promises of Christ to address their plight. So, we need to clarify there then that when we're speaking here about saving faith, that this is what takes hold of promises. It's what rests upon grace, not commands per se. 
We, of course, affirm, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that we believe all the Bible with what's called by our theologians a general faith. We believe everything in Scripture. We believe the Ten Commandments to be true, good, and beautiful, and the two great commandments. But don't you dare trust in those words. Don't you dare rest in those words. Rather, we rest in Christ who has fulfilled those words for us in the promises, not in the commands. No one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So our second point, it's instruments of saving faith. Third, we think about the nature of saving faith. We'll pick up pace here. Traditionally, we've used three categories to speak about saving faith. Faith has to have knowledge. Just know something about one whom you believe. It's not wishful thinking. It's not blind faith. There must be knowledge there. Furthermore, there must be some assent there. There are many scholars who know things in the Bible. They have knowledge about what's in the Bible, but they don't actually affirm it as true. So you must know what the Bible teaches. You must to affirm it's true. So knowledge and assent. Third and finally, as we think about saving faith, trust. Trust. To receive a gift. To rest upon a promise. To not be active in doing, but to say, Amen, it is done, and it is done for me, a sinner. This is that confidence. Often we see in the New Testament the word confidence being used as a synonym, clarifying term for faith. You can also say trust is another very good synonym for understanding saving faith. Saving faith is what, is a care, uh, what receives Christ, whether you're in the New Testament or in the Old. We think about the emphasis in the New Testament, but just building on Abraham in the Old. That Abraham heard those promises as God brought him out and said, hey, take a look. This is what I'm doing for you. Did Abram get busy? No. He just believed the Lord. It was credited to him as righteousness. This is trust. This is confidence. So, the nature of saving faith. Fourth, it's contents. Talk a bit more about the knowledge <clears throat> that we must have. There is an objective deposit of faith given to us by the apostles, which builds upon the Old Testament. This is that apostolic deposit that fills all of Holy Scripture, but then is very helpfully summarized for us in the Apostles' Creed, which nowhere tells us to do anything. It tells us what to believe. And so we confess, I believe. We say, Amen. This is that triune work of God in which we place all of our trust, in which we place all of our hope. Finally, the effect of saving faith. The effect of saving faith. We can think about uh, union with Christ from different vantage points. Our catechism here <clears throat> as it talks about the effect of saving faith, 
is talking about what is often called mystical union or vital union. Let me clarify that for us. We can speak about a certain union talked in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We can speak about that as a decretal union. This is eternal. This is in the purpose of God that we be united to his Son. That decree then becomes um, manifest then first as Christ came to represent us. We were crucified in Christ. When he walked on earth as our federal head, God did not only see Jesus, he saw you. He saw me. Why? Because that decretal union then becomes a federal union. A representative union. Whereby you are imputed to Christ. All your sins credited to him. And he acts as your representative. Joined to you. So that decretal union is eternal. Then there's that representative union whereby your second Adam came to walk for you. And then third, we come now to what the catechism is getting at, that mystical or vital union where the Holy Spirit brings you to new life and you trust in Christ. And through that faith in Christ, you are then joined to Christ actually. Like a, vi- like a branch grafted into a vine. And you partake then, really and truly, of that vital sap that flows from Him to you. That you might then begin to bear fruit as a fruit-giving branch off that heavenly vine. You are alive in Christ. Previously, you were not alive. But by the Spirit's birthing work, By believing and seeing Christ, you are then grafted into Christ to partake of Him and all of His benefits. We speak about those benefits of that mystical union as twofold. A twofold grace being joined to Christ. There's those forensic benefits, and then there's the transformative benefits. The forensic benefits being justification and that status of being adopted. You are righteous in Christ as you are joined to Him by grace through faith. And secondly, that twofold grace brings us transformation of our life. Because God will not leave us under the dominion of sin and death and Satan. He loves us too much to leave us there. And so he saves us, not only from sin's guilt, but also progressively from sin's power. So we've spoken about saving faith today. Its cause, the Holy Spirit. Its instruments, the gospel promises. Its nature, it is trust. It is confidence that not only to others, but to me also. It is full of contents 
summarized by the Apostles' Creed, and it has the most beautiful effects, that you stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and you are being conformed now to the very image of your Savior. Amen.